We'll read tonight in uh, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we will read from uh, verse 1 to verse 11, and then uh, 21 to 31 as we read the verses. Please be aware of uh, the different themes of slavery and who's an heir, who's a son, who's adopted, who wants to be enslaved again, uh, the function of the law, uh, things like that that have come up in our two studies. So we'll read and pray and then we'll look into the text. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those who of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave but of the free woman. Let's pray. Our God, once again, we ask for your help in this study. We are thankful for this clear passage that Paul has written. We are thankful for the clear issues in the book of Galatians. We do ask that by your spirit, you would give us understanding of the important things uh, that these 
uh, verses teach us. We pray that you would help us to be hearers and doers of your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. We will uh, look at this uh, text with a little uh, introduction and review, something a little bit longer than I usually do, but just to uh, bend the nail over on a few uh, things. And then uh, the first uh, uh, heading will be uh, children, heirs, and adoption. Uh, the second one will be a question, return to slavery, and then Paul's allegory, uh, and then uh, applications. In our two previous studies, we uh, found that they all uh, share the same three things. Uh, each of these studies shares a dominating issue, uh, a separation caused by conflict, and a display uh, of God's mercy. In the first study, uh, the dominating issue was Sarah's barrenness and uh, the separation caused by conflict uh, because of Sarah's plan B uh, was first Hagar uh, resented Sarah and gave her a hard time and then Sarah gave it right back so much so that Hagar fled and then the display of God's mercy is uh, that deliverance was shown to Hagar. You remember she received a command a prophecy, and a promise, and she followed that. She returned to uh, her home. Uh, the second study, the dominating issue, was the birth of Isaac. Finally, this child of promise was born. Uh, the separation caused by conflict was Ishmael's mocking and then Sarah's request to Abraham that uh, they be put away. And uh, they were put away as God confirmed to Abraham that that was the thing to do at that time. And then once again, God's display of mercy uh, is that he delivered Ishmael and uh, Hagar in their overwhelming despair. You remember she put him under a bush. She, she got far away and she said, I, I don't, I don't want to see him die and he's going to die and I'm going to die. Overwhelming despair. And God came to her and said, I've heard the cry of the boy where he is and delivered her again. Uh, the third study, now the dominating issue, is uh, Judaizers. Judaizers wanted uh, Christians to go back to the law and follow the law in addition to Christ. Uh, the separation that's caused by the, by the conflict we see, that you, you could be a slave to sin, but now you're an heir. You could have been freed from bondage and you're adopted into God's kingdom, but they want you to go back. The, the pattern that Paul is worried about is, I was a slave to sin, now I'm freed in Christ, and now the Judaizers want me to be a slave again. The display of God's mercy is that the, the Gentiles are sons of the promise. And we looked at one text uh, last time in chapter 4. Gentiles are sons of the promise, and you, you realize that the letter to uh, the Galatians was a regional letter. Galatia was not a city, it was an area. So this is going out to uh, uh, a lot of believers. Our study today brings us once again into this uh, charged atmosphere uh, of the dominating issue, the blessing, the conflict, uh, what should we do? And Paul uh, is taking this uh, dead seriously. He has labored among them, and now he uh, addresses the issue in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 
Notice the powerful language. Well, chapter 6, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting. So he actually says, I'm amazed of what's going on. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Well, didn't you just say that? Well, Paul did just say it. And the reason he just said it is he doesn't want his, his message. He doesn't want the meaning of what he said to be mistaken at all. Uh, this cursing is separation from God forever. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 25, 41 said, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire. This is the kind of cursing that, that Paul is saying. And he uses that hypothetical thing that even if he came back or an angel came back and said anything else that the gospel was, they should be a curse too. It wouldn't really happen, but he uses that hypothetical thing. How strong a language it is to repeat basically the same verse. Chapter 3 and verse 10, he's trying to get them to see the, the danger that they're in. Chapter 3, verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. He's saying, you started as slaves, now you're free, now you're going to go back. I need to remind you that you're cursed because no one can keep the law of God. You cannot do it. It's not a way of salvation, it's a way of condemnation. It's not a way of of justification. It's a way that God has chosen so that you would see that you need Christ, that you're a sinner. And he's, he's making it clear to them, you're trying to go back and live under a curse. Slave, faith, slave, and you'll be cursed again. Live under the law, cursed. Have faith in Christ, go back, live under the law, cursed. But notice the powerful, the powerful way he sums it up in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Where did, where did the curse go? Where did it go? The curse went to Christ. There's, there's the two pictures of cursing. You'll be cursed yourself or you can depend on the cursed one the Lord Jesus Christ, who took away the sin. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then he says that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. It opened up, you remember, a watershed of blessing, the birth of Isaac. Just to make some observations or uses of this, note again Paul's concern. I've mentioned it a couple of times. Slave, free in Christ, slave. And you're, you're dealing with the cross of Christ then, aren't you? Hebrews talks about people that, that put it to open shame. They say, well, Christ's cross is, uh, we need to find something else. Christ's cross didn't do it all. Well, the second point is that Christ plus is the cross minus. And I forgot to write down who I owe that to, but that is the whole thing right there. Christ plus anything 
is the cross minus, and that vacuates the, the cross. That makes the cross of null effect. Our studies in the Hebrews will show us the perfection of the cross. From chapter 5, verse 1, he says everything a priest does. He goes all the way up through, through chapter 10, and the word perfect is going to keep coming up over and over and over again because you cannot have anything more perfect than the cross of Christ. Paul knows the power in the blood. He knows the power of, a, of atonement. It's perfect atonement. There's a perfect Savior. There's a perfect sacrifice. There's perfect justice and perfect mercy. And you say, how could that be? How could the cross be two things that are contrary at the same time? But it is because it was God's work. Perfect justice and perfect mercy are demonstrated in the cross of Christ. You cannot add anything to it. Not only that, a perfect propitiation of God's wrath, a perfect satisfaction of all those broken laws. You live under a curse, you flee to Christ, you trust your soul in him. It's as if his perfect life was put on you. God is not angry with you anymore. That hymn that I love, the writer brings us into the courtroom. He says, the father listens to the son and lays his thunder by. Jesus Christ is like our defense lawyer, comes to the, the father and says, he's one of mine. And God says, not guilty. If you try to add anything, you really take it away and you evacuate the cross of its power. People who say the cross is not good enough, they're saying, I'd rather be under a curse. And then from the first few verses, how much should we bless and thank God for the true gospel? The true gospel can be known. Paul said, I came to you and I preached the true gospel and you got saved. And if anybody preaches anything different, they should be accursed. The gospel is knowable. It's definable. We can put our hands around it. We know when we're saved by it. We know the power of it. We will know when the Holy Spirit worked in our hearts and converted us and, and turned us. He sums it up in chapter 3, verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I'm not a slave anymore. I'm a child of promise. 1974, whenever it was, and God brought convicting. And Abraham was thousands and thousands of years before. And God brought that conviction on my soul and led me to Christ. And I became an heir of the promise that was given to Abraham thousands and thousands of years ago. You see the sand, Abraham? You have descendants like that. One of them's Art Mink. You see the stars, Abraham? You're going to have descendants like that. One of them's Art Mink. What an amazing thing. If you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So then children, heirs, and adoption. This is our first main heading. Uh, Paul talks about being an heir and a slave. And one time we talked about it, right? If, if, if one of the kids in the nursery, their dad was a billionaire and the other one wasn't, and they were running around, you couldn't tell. You know, that kid is, there is, there is a, a young man named Lucas uh, Walton, who is a grandson of Sam Walton. 
Unfortunately, his father passed away in a, a, an airplane accident. But if you look up the most rich people in the world, you'll find this 33 or 34 year old Lucas Walton is one of the richest people in the world just because he's a grandfather of Sam Walton or grandson of Sam Walton. And you can look it up and it's verifiable. But when he was in the nursery, you couldn't tell he was a billionaire. You couldn't tell he was one of the hundred most rich people in the world when he was two years old. So Paul is saying, you, you can't tell until the promise works. You can't tell until, until God calls you and says, no, you're, you're a child of the promise now. One is a slave, one's a child of the promise. And then he's trying to get them to think ab about where they came from. Uh, it says he's under guardians and managers, verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved. Right? There's the picture of Hagar. Enslaved to the elementary principles or the, the elementary uh, spirits of the world. And, and the elementary principles and elementary spirits of the world is really everything that the world comes up with. Uh, the Jews had laws that were designed to teach true worship of Yahweh. Instead, they ended up worshiping idols. They came up with their own ideas. The Pharisees took the law, got all bound up in Pharisaism, in politics, in legalism. And uh, in this case, uh, people tried to add to the what salvation was. Uh, the Gentiles, uh, Paul uses the very same language in Colossians 2.8. It's the same wording and the same issues, the elemental spirits or the elemental principles of the world. Uh, philosophy, man's philosophy was popular. He calls it empty deceit according to human tradition. According to these elemental principles, Paul's uh, message to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 is, is absolutely very important and vital for us to know. He says they're ignorant. They, they said to an unknown God, they built an altar and it was to an unknown God. It was to a God they couldn't even figure out who it was. Well, just, just build it there and put the title on it. We don't know. We don't know how many gods there are. Just put another idol on. Paul said they worshiped in ignorance and they spent all their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's the elemental principles of the world. Man's ideas about things. It's vain thought and vain actions of men. Jews miss everything that God blessed them with. Gentiles are just adrift in a sea of ideas. When, when I was young, the, the Beatles were popular. In, uh, in uh, 1967... They had a song, All You Need Is Love. And in 1969, they broke up. Well, what, what kind of love was working there? If you read any kind of story, this one hated that one, who hated the way this one was writing music, who hated Yoko Ono, who hated this, who hated that. But all you need is love. Another lie was the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Remember that? We're living in that, aren't we? What did they say? Listen to this. Harmony and understanding, sympathy and trust abounding. No more falsehoods and derisions, golden living dreams of visions, mystic crystal revelation, and the mind's true liberation. Would you like your mind liberated today? 
Well, you have to figure out what a mystic crystal revelation is first. Brethren, the sad thing is, hundreds of people believe this. Thousands of people believe that. They thought because some stars aligned over here and did this, that was this whole dawning of a new age. But it's, it's baloney. It's elementary spirits of the world that cannot save the soul. I worked with a guy once in my contractor business that had a rock in his pocket. And he would get nervous and he would grab that rock and he would hold it because the energy in that rock helped him to get through things. Dead serious. Something happened, he didn't like it, he grabbed that rock. I knew somebody else, new age. If you went to their house over here, there was a pile of stones, some sticks, a branch or two, a pine cone maybe, over there, rocks, stones, sticks, a pine cone, because the energy from those things would keep the house. Well, somebody added to that folly by saying, we need to get the priest in here and sprinkle holy water around. Brethren, people by the thousands, by the millions, by the billions are deceived by this. It's all the elementary principles of the world. You, you say, how in the world do these people believe this? But they believe it sincerely every day. And that's why Paul is pressing it. Because people can be deceived and go back to the elemental principles of the world. It, it, it's touted as freedom. The, the, the Athenians thought they were really religious. The, the Pharisees and the Judaizers thought they were really doing the right thing, but they were doing exactly the opposite. It is not according to Christ. And here in Galatians, it's enslavement. Slave, free, back to slavery. But then in verse 4 through 7, there's God's timely intervention. Remember Sarah it said that God visited Sarah, and in the text in uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says God visited Mary. In the text in Genesis, at the, God said at the time of which he had spoken, or he said this time next year, <laughs> you remember that. How fast is a baby coming if you say this time next year she's going to have a child? You don't have much to, you don't have much time to wait before conception starts and nine months and Isaac came out. But the same thing with Mary. Christ comes at the fullness of time. An impossible birth takes place just like Sarah's birth. And then we're redeemed by the birth of Christ to be adopted as sons and to call on God. And no longer be slaves, but be sons. And in a sense, have our own special language with God. Now, I don't like, I don't like the people that say, oh, we call God daddy, daddy, daddy. No, God still deserves all our respect and honor and love. It's a close relationship, but it's not some baby relationship. We're not toddlers talking to our father. We're, we're human beings who've been saved by Christ. And we have a new heart and a new mind to say, you're my father. Then Paul goes on, secondly then, in verses 8 through 11, he puts in their mind this return to slavery. He talks about, in verse 8, that you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. And that's why I spent a little time on the philosophies and those things of the world. People are enslaved to things that are not 
gods. Are video games gods? Is my job a god? Is my car a god? Is, is my house a god? No, they're not gods, but people are enslaved to them, and they can't break away. And Paul's saying, that's what you were. The present state is that they came to be known by God, and they were sons, but then that burning question in verse 9, how are you desiring to go back and be slaves again? Slaves you want to be, he says. If you go back, you want to be a slave. If you try to observe as a means to an end, there's no fruit, it's vain labor, there's no salvation. And so hopefully those thoughts then help us to come to this allegorical argument. It's really very interesting. This is the first time that anybody in the scripture, the only time, that somebody actually uses the word allegory. And the Greek word can be transliterated right into English. And Paul says, that's what it is. But he comes at them from another direction and asks them a probing question. He's saying, give me an explanation. If you want to be under the law, how come you're not listening? Or you do listen. You, you call the section of the Bible the law, but you're not understanding what it is. It's like, uh, it's like the study we did in uh, Matthew 12 when Jesus says, have you not read what David did when he went? You see, they knew all those passages. They knew it, but they missed the whole meaning. You remember the Pharisees missed mercy. They couldn't have any mercy on, on the disciples because they missed it. They read the whole Old Testament and they missed mercy. It's almost impossible but they were hung up on the elementary principles of the world, their position, their power, their laws, their rules. And he says, if you, if you say you're under the law, why don't you listen? And then he, he does the same thing that Jesus did. Notice, for it is written. For it is written. You want to go back to the law? Then here, here's the quote. Here's what it is. If you're going to listen to the law, then here comes a list. Abraham had two sons. You could picture the two columns. You can really make them uh, two columns at home. It's interesting to see how they build up. Abraham had two sons, one of the slave woman, one of the free woman, one born according to the flesh, one born according to the promise. There's a contrast of bondage and promise. And remember all the conflict and all the spiritual issues he defines the allegory. He's, uh, an allegory basically is a description of one thing under the image of another. Uh, if you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory, right? The, the burden on his back that he can't get rid of, that's his sin. So the backpack that weighs him down, it's, it's like sin. One thing is taken for another. Now, uh, leave it to Paul and John Bunyan, all right? Let's not try for allegorical interpretations of, of Scripture because it always leads to error. In any other case, uh, it has always led to error. People uh, predicting the end of the world based on numerology and the number of kings in the Old Testament, all this kind of stuff. Let's leave it up to Paul. And then Paul uh, uses the word uh, allegoromani, and uh, that's it. By an allegory, he means something more than an illustration. Right? It is a spiritual truth embodied in history, a shadow 
from the eternal world cast upon the sands of time. And then at one time he said uh, in the wilderness that they, the Moses hit the rock and then the rock was Christ. So that, that was an allegory that, that, that Paul has in 1 Corinthians, but we'll move on to our, our list. So Hagar is a slave. She represents the old covenant, he says in this picture. She's a picture of Mount Sinai. She's a slave who bears children for slavery. Uh, she is, corresponds to Mount Sinai of Arabia, the location of all her offspring. They're all under the law. They're all slaves. Uh, and this corresponds to the present Jerusalem, which he says is under slavery as well. You remember Jesus wept over Jerusalem to, to, to turn her. She didn't understand the, the time of her visitation. President Biden's in your living room. Oh, I didn't know that. Jerusalem didn't understand. The Messiah is walking around. The Messiah is in the temple. The Messiah is in Galilee. The Messiah is in Bethany. The Messiah is performing miracles. Uh, 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 who's that? That's why Paul is using this illustration. That's why we should understand this. You can miss the most clear signs of spiritual things. You can. And he says that Jerusalem is located in Arabia too. Then Sarah, if you put that list, she's from the free Jerusalem above. See, it's not another city. It's above. It's a spiritual thing. Hebrews 11.10 For he was not looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Abraham was told, I'm going to bring you to this great country. But in his heart, Abraham said, I don't need a country. I want to go someplace else. I want to go to the better country. I want to go to heaven. I want to live with God. I don't want to just have fellowship with God and have a tent here. I want to go someplace else. Hebrews 12, 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city, the living God, the heavy, heavenly Jerusalem. That's the only Jerusalem we come to. It's a heavenly one. It's a spiritual one. Hebrews is going to show us that all our... All our looking towards Christ is upward and in, as Gary says, as close as God as we can get. Right? All the way in, he says. We go all the way in. The veil is rent. Christ's body was the tent. It's all broken down. There's unlimited access to God. Revelation 3.12 speaks of the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven. It's not, it's not there in a place in, in Palestine. The Jerusalem that we're looking for, is, it's all spiritual. It's a, it's a kingdom that's not of this world. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. That's where it comes from. That's where we aspire to. You remember when Lazarus was, was uh, uh, raised from the dead, what were the Jews concerned about? They're going to come and take away our place. They're gonna, Romans are going to take away our place. All they wanted was control of a physical temple. And brethren, if you're Christ, your hope is in a, a glorious temple that can't be made with hands. It comes out of heaven. It's a spiritual temple. And I want to tell you, if you're saved, your father Abraham saw the same thing. He wasn't looking for a patch of ground. 
He wasn't looking for a place to say, well, there's a well over there. Let's start pitching our tents here. He had something else in mind. It was heavenly and it was spiritual. And so as, as Paul summarizes this thing, he basically is saying we have two mothers, there's two sons, there's two covenants, there's two cities, and there are two families. The families of, of the, the cursed, the slaves who live under the law, and the families of those who are truly sons and daughters of Isaac the saved. And then there's prophetic fulfillments just to underscore the whole thing. The New Testament uh, writers use this. There's two quotes. The one is from Isaiah 54 verse 1, and it follows right after Isaiah 53, the suffering servant uh, chapter. And Paul says, Sing, O barren one, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the the one who has a husband. Well, the idea, the idea is that way back when Israel had a husband and the husband was God. And there is a lot of husband and wife and adultery images in the, in the scripture that show that. The, the prophets tell the people, you're adulterers because you're going away from God. You're, you're going to idols. And so they had a husband and they should have borne uh, children. Israel was supposed to be the example to everybody what it was like for a nation to follow God and be blessed by God. And instead, the context is Isaiah, where he's talking about coming judgment. That's not the way it was supposed to be. They were supposed to be examples, just like us. We're supposed to be able to tell other people about the Lord Jesus Christ, not shrink in shame because we, we live a hypocritical life and we can't really tell anybody how great the gospel is. That's what happened to Israel. Sarah was barren according to God's plan. Israel became, as it were, barren. Isaac was the first one. He opened the womb. And now basically what Paul is saying, the one that was not married is going to have children. He's basically talking about the Gentile expansion of the gospel. God wasn't confused. He didn't say, well, this plan with Israel didn't work out. I got to come up with something. No, no. He always planned on saving Gentiles. He, he always wanted the glory of Christ to be expanded. Revelation says there's, there's millions of people and you can't even count them from every tribe, kindred, nation, and tongue. You can't even count them all. And that's what this passage is about. He's, he's saying, don't get caught up in the bondage because the freedom is going to be much, much greater. The freedom is, is going to be incredible because the gospel is going to spread everywhere. John Gill says, this is cited to prove that the heavenly Jerusalem or the gospel is the mother of us all and has brought forth and still will bring forth many souls to Christ, even many more than were under the legal dispensation of the Jewish nation. You remember Elijah in his despair. I'm the only one that's left. That's how spiritual Israel was, that a prophet could think he was the only one left. And God had to say, no, no, no. There's about 7,000. But compared to the two or three million that were in the nation, that was still a very few. Even a prophet thought 
He was the only one. But Paul says, no, this is going to spread out. It will be like a, a woman that didn't have a husband. You would say, well, how is she going to have kids? And, and Paul says, no, she's going to have more than the one that has a husband. He talks about the fulfillment in verse 28. Now, you brothers, let me, let me get it, 428. Now, you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. We're children of promise, not slaves. And then he talks about the continuing conflict. Remember, conflict, he says, just at that time when Ishmael mocked Isaac, he uses the word persecuted. It's the, it's the strongest word. It is the word for persecuting. But he's saying now it's as if the Judaizers are persecuting the true church. The slaves are persecuting the free. That's what he's saying. Uh, the, the second study, it says Ishmael mocked Isaac. The Paul says the Judaizers are persecuting. The second prophetic fulfillment, he says, but what does the scripture say in verse 30? It's the argument, again, supported by God's words, what Sarah said, right? He shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. She understood this was the final separation. This was the child of promise, child of promise, child of slavery. Uh, he underscores to us uh, that there's this separation. Uh, no matter what happened with Hagar, no matter how many times she was delivered, she wasn't the mother of the child of promise. And Paul underscores that. You're either under the promise or you're under the curse. Well, let's look at some applications. I believe we have uh, uh, time. Uh, first of all, remember... Uh, uh, lessons in the life of Hagar. Hagar uh, is a picture uh, of slavery. In one way, you could say once a slave, always a slave. She was probably picked up in the first trip down to Egypt and brought back and then got involved in the plan A, right? Sarah said, you, you go into my husband. And uh, right, if, you, if you read that, sometimes you would say, no, no, don't do that. That's plan B. Don't do that. They knew who... They knew who God said was going to have a child that was Sarah. And you would want to say, no, don't do that. Plan B's never work. But all mankind by nature, he says, Hagar is your mother. If you're unconverted, if you're unconverted, your mother is Hagar. There's nothing you could do about it. You're a slave to sin. You're cursed. But then don't we learn a lot from Hagar about God's mercy? God delivered her twice. Think about the mercy that God showed to her, delivered her twice. The one, it seems like, it seems like spiritual growth and spiritual understanding just blossomed in her heart. She says, I've been seen by the one who sees me. And she calls the place Beher Lahairoi. It, it, it still had that name chapters later we saw. And she says, that's it. I'm, I'm making a monument to God's mercy and God's grace. 16 years later, she's out in the wilderness and she has no hope at all. None at all. He's going to die and I'm going to die. That's it. And God delivers her again. The second time God demonstrates mercy, even though she's in utter despair. I would ask us, though, remember God's mercies always. Sometimes you talk to people and they're like the good old days people. Oh, I remember the good old days. 
when God was working and he did this and he did that and everything was going good. No, 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 no. Don't be a good old days person. Was that Hagar's problem? Oh, well, 16 years ago, God worked, but I have no hope now. Those were the good old days when, when I was at Behar Lahai Roy, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be dead and the kid's going to be dead. That's it. It's not the good old days. God works all the time. God shows mercy all the time. We don't, we don't have to have one day where we're driving down the street and we say, well, the tractor trailer lost its brakes and stopped two feet behind me. And then the other day I was walking down the street and a lightning bolt hit six feet away and I wasn't hurt. And then on Wednesday, uh, this happened and that happened. No, we don't have to see 15 miracles every week to know that God works. It's not the good old days. It's every day that God works. Every day. Well, you say, what are you talking about? I'm going to get up tomorrow. I'm going to make coffee. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to do this. That's God's working. This is Holy Spirit inspired. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You, you could sit there and read and say, well, I didn't get much out of it. And God just wrote it on your heart and you didn't know it. It's not the good old days. God works all the time. And maybe she didn't meditate on God's works. This is what I would call connect the dots. It's not the good old days. But I know this was a sign of mercy, and this was a sign of mercy, and this was a sign of mercy, and that was a sign of mercy, and that was a sign of mercy. And all the dots are connected. And God has shown me mercy my whole life. Oh, but you say, I just kind of sit around at home. I don't really have an impact on other people. I don't do this, brethren. We're told to gather together. Is my faith buttressed by seeing other people in this place? Yes, it is. God is at work. I know he wants to go to Pakistan. That blesses me. I'm blessed when somebody preaches the word to me and speaks the word to me. And I know it's the voice of the living God for me that day. And connect the dots. And if Sunday is a big dot connecting, you connect Sunday to Sunday to Wednesday too. Because we get to plead our case before the Lord. We're free. We're free in Christ. We're free to listen to the word and take it in and, and go home and say, Lord, what a, what a wonderful blessing you've given to us of salvation. What a perfect cross. What a perfect atonement. And maybe she forgot. And then fill your life with thankfulness. Fill your life with thankfulness. And you have to do that yourself. There was an old guy that was a president of a college up in New York, Dr. Cook, and he used to repeat the same thing over and over. Pray and thanks. So he'd say, pray when you get up in the morning and pray when you're getting dressed and pray when you're eating breakfast and pray when you're driving to work. Well, he would say the same thing about being thankful. Be thankful when you get up. Be thankful when you get dressed. Be thankful when you're eating your breakfast. Be thankful when you're driving to work. And I admit to you and confess to you that I am not thankful enough because the contemplation of the things that we have been saved from and are saved to are amazing. And we would not be like Hagar and have a high point and then a low, low, overwhelming despair point, I think, if we did some of these things. Forget about the good old days. God works today. Meditate on God's work. Connect the dots. 
fill your life with thankfulness. And then the last thing under here is worship privately. Worship privately. Bless the Lord. Read those last four or five Psalms that say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That, that lifts up your heart. That, that helps you. That keeps you from going to, from Beher, the high Roy to utter despair. Because you're worshiping God. And then finally, just to, to remember the significance of the passage. We said the passage was very historical. It was prophetic and theological. And we have to look at this. It's an amazing way that God works with people, isn't it? Three passages are the only passage that, that Hagar is in the whole scripture. And one, the fourth one, just says that uh, Ishmael was Hagar's son. And she just kind of passes by. But she hasn't passed by in our minds, has she? No, she's, she's left the mark. She's taught us something. There's, there's these kings there that do incredible things. Josiah and some guy named Jehoshaphat. And they, they do amazing things. And then the next chapter, you never hear Jehoshaphat again. But it's historical. It really happened to those people in the time that God chose it to happen. It was God's plan. We saw it was God's time for birth. We saw that everything goes by God's time in all of history. And then we said that this is prophetic. And you didn't keep count, and I had to count. But in the three passages that we looked at in this study, there's seven prophecies. So God not only controls history, but God's word governs everything. It governs everything. Seven prophecies and three little passages. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. Boom, that's it. And from Isaac comes every, every saved person. And I can say, I'm of the seed of Abraham. I'm just like Isaac. I'm a child of promise. And then finally, finally, we saw some theological things. Slavery to sin. Unable to stop its power. Unable to stop its consequences. And then we also th saw freedom. The power is in the blood of Jesus Christ. I, I want to leave you with the power of Jesus' blood because we are free from the power and the consequences of sin because of that initial promise, that initial birth, and God working in history and his prophetic word. And we have a Savior that is unmatched. He's perfect and meets our every need. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word to our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for these things. We thank you for uh, Paul and how we, we, we catch his spirit, Lord. We catch his fire to, to protect the gospel. We, we catch his arguments and we, we would not want to turn to trust in anything else except the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for this great salvation that was promised so many years ago. We're thankful for the prophecies and the the threads through the entire history of the world uh, that bring the birth of Jesus about his death, his resurrection. We pray that we would be thankful and worshipful people in our hearts and, and, and cry out with the people in Revelation, even so, come Lord Jesus.